Lord, thank you so much for this season. Thank you for being able to um, have Advent, to wait, to anticipate. Help us to remember that we are waiting for you, Lord. And um, pray that if in this season we got wrapped up in a lot of busyness, Lord, that we would um, not despair, but that um, we would come to you and and we would um, celebrate Christmas in our hearts. And Lord, um, pray for the scripture today and for the sermon, Lord, that we would be able to hear you in it. Lord, that you would speak through Pastor Ross and um, that we would receive from you. Thank you for um, coming to earth for us. Amen. Uh, okay, so we're going to read Genesis 25. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Um, so it's towards the beginning of the Bible, and we're going to read verses 1 through 18. There's a lot of names in here. I'm going to do my best. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Maiden, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dadan. The descendants of Dadan were the Asherites, the Letishites, and the Luamites. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanuk, Abida, and Elda. All these were descendants of Keturah. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Altogether, Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years. And he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zoar the Hittite, in the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahairoi. This is the account of Abraham's son Ishmael, whom Sarah's maidservant Hagar the Egyptian bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael listed in order of their birth Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, Ab- Adbil, Mibsen, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jatur, Nefish, and Kedema. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these are the names of the twelve tribal rulers according to their settlements and camps. Altogether, Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur, near the border of Egypt, as you go towards Asher, and they lived in hostility toward all their brothers. Hello, church. We made it to the end of Abraham's story. This is the last sermon in this series on Abraham's life. Uh, As we reach this point in his life, predictably, it ends on a bittersweet note in his death. Uh, Abraham dies uh, after living an amazing life, a miraculous life, in the presence and power of God, and yet at the end of it all, he ends up in the grave and in the tomb, it's a, it's a bittersweet note where he's buried and his family gathers around him. It is, I think, a poignant moment for us because all of us inevitably as we live, 
We face the future prospect of death, and we face evidences of death along the way. Right? The, the world is not coming together as much as it's falling apart. Bodies, relationships, emotions, whatever. Abraham's death is a very powerful reminder of everything that we have to endure and face and go through. Now, as we walk along this journey and story of his life, at the moments where he has the most hope, he has the most purity and power. And the moments where he has the most um, despair is when his life falls apart. And as we face the different evidences of death in our lives, we also are in a battle again between hope and despair. And where we end up is oftentimes going to govern and determine how we live through this life. So every one of us all around right now are facing different things that want to lead us towards despair. And despair blinds us to God's goodness. It blinds us to his promises. It blinds us to how he can help us. And it leaves us cut off from him. So one question I want to ask this morning as we look at the end of Abraham's life is how do we battle against our despair? How do we put it to death so that we can live the miraculous kind of life Abraham lived at his best moments and not live the kind of failures, not repeat the same kind of failures that he lived at his worst moments? I think one of the things that shocked and surprised me most as I went through this text, as I studied it for this week, was that even as Abraham is being buried, the imagery and the themes and the text are actually all things that are pointing forward towards good things in the future. Abraham's life ends on a note and on a moment of life and hope for the future. And so now let's jump into our text and see where we see this. Now as we look at the first section that Ali did a great job of reading, there's a lot of names. And we often find these names like the most boring thing in the Bible ever, don't we? Like, it's, it's the part where we're really struggling to stay awake when we're reading early in the morning when it's going through the names. And yet, the names are there for a reason. God's making a point. The authors are making a point. These lists of names are called genealogies. Everyone say genealogy. Now, there's two types of genealogies in the story. There's genealogies of God's people, and there's genealogies of the nations. Genealogies of God's people move quickly from father to son, father to son, father to son, without pausing to fill out the generations. And those are the most common type of genealogy in the text. And what they're doing is they're highlighting that God's story is moving forward towards Jesus. God promised that Jesus would come. He would be the offspring of the woman. All all the Bible is a story that's moving forward towards Jesus. It's a genealogy of God's people. That's not what we have here. We start off with something else. It's a genealogy that moves slower. Did anyone notice how slowly it moved? Right? There's, there's name, name, and then brothers and all sorts of people within each generation. It's a genealogy of the nations. It slows down and it meditates on the nations. And I think that's the point. Right? So I had a seminary professor. He pointed this out to me several years ago, which is that these nations, they seem unimportant to God's plan. They would be people that we would forget, and so we would tend to skip over them. They are not people that God forgets. 
So the reason that God inspires Moses to write this way is because these nations, these people at this point in the story are not people that God has forgotten. They're people that he remembers and they're people that he writes about and he cares about. When God first called Abraham and calls him to bless the nations, he's not just giving Abraham and his line blessing for their own sake. He's giving him blessing for the sake of all the different people who are far away from him. The people who we would tend to forget, the people that the world forgets, are the people that God remembers. Which is really good news for us as we gather here this morning because a lot of us are not the most remarkable people. We're not the most outstanding people. We're not the people that feel important and treasured a lot by other people. But I promise you this morning that if you're a human being, you're made in the image of God and you're valuable to him. And that's why the Bible has lists of names that seem boring to us because people aren't boring to God. The story of Abraham starts with the nations in view, and it ends with the nations in view. And so it spends time here detailing these nations. And I know there's some of us here, you've been mistreated in your life. You've been mistreated. You've been forgotten. You've not been acted rightly towards either by your family or by the people of God or your church in the past. And it can lead to the wrong assumption that God does not care about you. God does not love you, that God is like the people who mistreated you. And it takes the Bible, it takes truth from God's word to remind us that God is never like that. He never forsakes anyone who comes to him. He never forgets any one of his children and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. When you read the story of Jesus, what kind of people, time, what kind of people does he spend time with? And he specifically goes to neglected, marginalized, forgotten people and uses them to change the world. And so what I want to do as I read lists like these of Abraham's descendants is to be encouraged that God's heart is bigger than mine. And God's heart is for every kind of person in every kind of place. And a lot of these people on this list, they probably did bad things and they were hard people to love. And yet God's heart is so big that he overcomes that and loves people anyway, and that's the kind of people that he wants to shape us into, to have names of people written on our hearts as well. It's not naturally how we are. It's the kind of people that God wants to turn us into. Now, we have Abraham. He takes a wife named Keturah, and and then it says later in verse 5, you can take a look at verse 5, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. So it sounds like when you first read it that this Keturah woman is a wife that Abraham took after Sarah died. Which would be totally fine, wouldn't it? Because your wife dies, you can take another spouse. Yet, if we really look at the details in the text, I don't think that this is what's happening here. Because if you remember, Abraham was having a lot of trouble, what, having children, wasn't he? And that was when he was 100 years old. Sarah died when Abraham was about 140 years old. So how is a 100-year-old man who can't have children going to take a wife at 140 years old and then start having all kinds of kids? I don't think it's very likely. And then look at verse 6. 
but to the sons of his concubines. You see the plural there? It says concubines, plural. A concubine is a wife you take in addition to your wife in the ancient world. It's a deviation from God's plan. It's a failure. In Abraham's life, it's a failure to trust God's promises that he's going to give him a wife through Sarah. So he takes an Egyptian wife named Hagar. I think what we have here is Moses including Keturah as another concubine that Abraham took during his wife in addition to Sarah and another failure of his. And if you look ahead in the Bible to 1 Chronicles 132, um, you don't need to turn there, but just so you know, when the person who's writing that book writes Keturah's name, he calls her a concubine. And so I think I, another encouraging note from this text is that when it, we think about the life of Abraham, he lives this amazing, awe-inspiring life at different moments. Like, it's just ridiculous the kinds of faithfulness he shows to God. And yet the story of his life is not propaganda. When Moses writes his story, he writes the real life, failures and all. And here, at the end of his story, he's reminding us that Abraham had failures like all of us. Abraham stumbled. Abraham failed to trust God's promises. Abraham gave in to despair. Abraham took concubines in addition to Sarah. And so he was a man who needed rescue just like us. Abraham is not flattered in the Bible. We get a picture of the real man with his real failures at the end of his life. And we see it right here, the origin of the nations that God works to redeem and rescue actually come through Abraham's disobedience and sin. Okay, so now it's the first section of this text. I want to get into the next section now with Abraham's death. And this is the part that I really hope brings us life this morning. This is the part that I see all kinds of evidences of hope. Let's take a look. I'm going to read these verses. Verse 7, take a look at them in your Bible. Please read along with me. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham is buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Beir Lahairoi. just want to invite you to take a moment, look at your Bible, Look at those verses and see if you can see any evidences of hope in these verses. I really had to scratch my head and sit and stare at these for a long time. I think some of them are more obvious than others. But the point here is not that death and despair are triumphing at the end of the day, but I think that life and hope are. I want to point out five observations of hope from these few verses for us. See that the way God works, the way God's plan works, is that he has good things in the future for his people. Hope is the forward-looking dimension of faith. So faith is trusting God to be good, and if you trust God to be good, you have hope for the future, that he has good things for you in the future. So that's just what hope is. So the first evidence, the first observation from this text is that Abraham lives 175 years. <laughs> My goodness, that is old. 
And when he dies, how does he die? It says that he died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. He lives for a long time, and God is faithful to him through it all. And the fact that he dies an old man and full of years isn't just a detail that's thrown into the text. It actually refers back to Genesis 15. God promised him that he would die this way. It says in Genesis 15, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. There's a writer named Rob Brown who pointed this out, that at the moment of Abraham's death, God was still keeping promises to him. Think about that. As he dies, God is keeping promises to him. It's showing us that death does not restrain God's faithfulness to his people. He never stops being faithful to them, never stops being faithful to us. If you follow Jesus and commit your trust to him, even at a moment of painful death, God will faithfully carry you through, bring you to the other side, and give you more hope, life, peace, satisfaction that never ends than you ever expected he could. Death breaks our relationships with this world, right? We, as soon as we die, we, we stop with these relationships for now. It does not break our relationship with God. God keeps his promise to Abraham right up until the moment of death, continuing to be faithful to him into his 175th year. And I love that. Observation two. Look at the next phrase. So Abraham dies, an old man of full of years. And then what does it say? And was gathered to his people. Kind of a weird phrase. I've never heard that said at anyone's funeral before. It's a way of talking about death in the ancient world. And what it implies, what it implies is that there's some kind of existence after death and that there's some sort of reunion with people you knew in this life. And so whatever else is in that mysterious phrase, I can't, I don't know exactly what it means. The idea is that there's hope, life, and a relationship beyond the grave for God's people. Abraham was gathered to his people. Evidence two of hope. Evidence three, let's look at verse nine. Who do we see here? Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him. Does that strike anyone else as surprising who's been here throughout this sermon series? Did Isaac and Ishmael have a good relationship? Okay, so Ishmael was jealous of Isaac and mocked him, and then Abraham sinfully expelled Ishmael away out into the wilderness with Hagar, Ishmael's mom. They have a horrible relationship. These are two hostile brothers. And yet at the end of it all, when Abraham dies, we see them coming together to bury their father. God has an agenda of bringing peace and unity between the nations around his chosen offspring, though the world brings division, hostility, and death. And so what God is doing in his church, what he's doing in Jesus, is pictured right here. He brings people who would never spend time with each other, people who are unlike each other, and brings them together to love one another and treat one another how God originally intended us to. God is a God of unity, healing, reconciliation, and peace, which means that we have to love one another in spite of our differences, 
And we also have to always remain hopeful that God can overcome hostility and division. We don't have much description about how well these brothers got along after this. We just don't know. All we know is that at the moment that Abraham dies, there's this hopeful note of these brothers who are estranged from one another coming together because God can bring anyone together through his love, mercy, and peace. Hope. Observation number four. Where do Isaac and Ishmael bury Abraham? Where do they bury Abraham? They bury him in this cave in Machpelah, in this field that Abraham bought from Ephron. There's a lot of details about this field every time it comes up. It's almost like Moses is OCD about this field, right? He's just writing all these different details about it. It seems like it's a really big detail in his mind. Like if you go through this story, the thing that has the most details is the burial place. Why is this so important? Why does this field matter? And it's not that the field itself matters. It's what the field looks forward to. What the field anticipates. Abraham lives 175 years and never gets everything God promised to him. He dies still waiting for it. But his death and being buried in Canaan shows that when he dies, he's waiting for God to keep fulfilling his promises. He's looking forward to the day his offspring are abundant and rule all the land of Canaan. And this hope and expectation doesn't go away. Isaac is buried here. And Jacob, when he's in Egypt, insists. He says, you got to bring me back to that field to be buried there. Because what Abraham is anticipating, what Isaac is anticipating, what Jacob is anticipating, is the day where heaven comes to earth and God's kingdom and dwelling are among his people again as it was in the beginning. So when the Bible is talking about Israel... When the Bible's talking about a promised land and a promised people, what it's talking about is what Graham's Goldworthy calls God's people in God's place under God's rule. It's restoring what was lost in the beginning. That's basically the way these pictures are working. Abraham's looking forward to God fixing what was lost. And he's buried in hope of that. He's buried believing that he'll wake up one day and everything that sin and death took from him and took from all people will be erased and it will be no more. To be a follower of Jesus is to believe that everything sad can come untrue. To believe that this life is not the end. To believe that after this life, God has the power to make all things new. The pain in your body that feels chronic, that won't go away, is not forever. If you follow Jesus, the only thing that's forever is being with him in his new creation. The depression and the anxiety that you just can't seem to get rid of is not forever. It's only until Jesus comes back and makes all things right. God's people uniquely, we die and we're buried in hope and confidence that we'll wake up and the world will be restored and all things will be made new. Our neighbors don't have that. 
That's why they often spend their lives on trivial things, trying to find pleasures that satisfy right now because they don't have hope that God's going to make everything new when Jesus comes back and makes the world right. We find Abraham living an amazing life because he expects amazing things. The key to living an amazing life is expecting amazing things. And he has this sort of confidence, this sort of belief that's symbolized by him being buried in this field, by his son being buried in this field, by his grandsons being buried in this field. Abraham believes that he's going to come back. He's going to see Jesus. He's going to live in a world that God has made right. And we're supposed to have that same kind of hope as we move forward towards our deaths. Observation five. This is the last one. This, this, one, seems, uh, this one seems a little insignificant at first, but I think it's very significant. Take a look at verse 11. Take a look at your Bibles right there. What does it say? It says, After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. That word blessed is often a pretty generic word we use, so it doesn't seem that important. But in the story, it couldn't be more important. Right? The word blessed refers to the blessing and life of Eden. God created a world where his own presence was there with people, providing life that never ended. That was cut off through human sin. We were cut off from the source of life. And then when God calls and finds Abraham and says he blessed him, gives to Abraham the same source of life and blessing that God originally created in the beginning, and Abraham's supposed to spread it out to the nations. But then Abraham, what, dies. So then the question is, does human death stop the purpose, stop the plan, stop the blessing of God? And in that phrase, we find that the answer is no, it doesn't. Human death does not stop the plan of God to bring life to dying people. The blessing of God passes on from Abraham to Isaac. It overcomes Abraham's death and God's purposes continue in the world. And the blessing of Isaac passes on to Jacob. And the blessing of Jacob passes on to the entire nation of Israel. And the, entire, the blessing of the entire nation of Israel passes on to Jesus who lives, dies, rises again, and defeats death. At this moment of Abraham's death, we're seeing God's relentless war against death continue. His plan to kill death keeps moving forward. I will die, and you will die, and that should mean that I have no hope, except for my God killed death, and your God killed death which means that your temporary life will not be the end and there's hope beyond what you can imagine on the other side of it. As we move from 2023 into 2024, I want us to be a church that is brimming and overfilled with hopeful expectation. If God defeated death, is there anything else that can keep him from giving us life? Really, are any of the circumstances in your life worth despairing over if he killed death? They're just not. I want to remain a hopeful person. I really believe 
that you and me will become the greatest versions of ourselves if we believe that God has incredible things ahead of us. It's at moments where we despair that we give in to our sin. That's what happened with Abraham. That's what happened with us. When we stop believing God has a plan for us to move forward, when we stop believing that there's something on the other side of the death, we indulge in sin in the present. I want to submit to you this morning that our worst moments are moments where we've given into despair. And you have to give in despair, into despair before you give into your sin. And the greatest moments where you conquer your sin and show love in miraculous ways to people who don't deserve it are the moments where you're filled with joy, expectation, and hope for the future. Like when I think about the story of Jesus, what does it say about him in the book of Hebrews? He went to the cross despising the shame. What? Because of the reward set before him. Like he has this sense of God's plan leads him through suffering to hope on the other side. So he obeys in miraculous, miraculous, unbelievable ways. And that's just, I think this is how God wants to shape our lives in order to live in ways that shock the world and bring people to Jesus is that we understand ourselves in light of his story as moving forward towards good things. And since our lives are defined by his story, we can always obey him, always trust him, even when it's hardest and it's darkest. Abraham dies in hope, and this story is supposed to make us live in hope. That's the effect I think it's supposed to have. That's where the Lord was impressing upon my heart how he wants me to live, how he wants me to change, I know for myself, I tend to despair most of all when I, and I know this sounds silly, when I lose things and double book myself and I feel like I'm losing control of my life. Like, I, I just get this sense of rage and anger in me when, when, I'm just mis, when I'm just mismanaging my life. And it leads, like, it leads to really ugly responses and ugly fruit coming out of me. I don't know if anyone else experiences this, where you just have the sense of anger in you when you feel like you're losing control. And when I vent my anger, that's me trying to say that I'm going to try to make myself feel better by venting my anger rather than trusting my God to guide me through these moments because I know that even though I lost control, he never did. Staying hopeful would look like staying obedient and trusting in those moments. And I suspect that you have similar moments of sin, you have similar moments of temptation, or maybe totally different moments, but it's remaining focused and fixed on hope that keeps us faithful through temptation. And now we find ourselves at the conclusion of the story and another genealogy, another genealogy of the nations. This time it's Abraham's other concubine, Hagar. It started with Abraham's first concubine, Keturah, death of Abraham, Abraham's second concubine, Hagar, and it tells of her stories, and it tells of her son, Ishmael, and his descendants, and his death. And I'm just struck that at the end of Abraham's life, we find ourselves in the exact same place as we were in the beginning. Blessing and the nations. Blessing and the nations. Blessing and the nations. Like, we have right at the middle of the text, God's blessing passing from Abraham to Isaac and literally surrounding that on both sides, like in the text, our nations. That's what I, I think these genealogies are partially doing here. They're, they're signaling to us that God is focused on Isaac. He's focused on his promises, not for the sake of them, but for 
everyone and anyone who will come to him. And so I just want to end this sermon. I just want to end this time of sharing God's word by inviting anyone who doesn't feel like they have hope because you don't yet know Jesus and your sin is still clouding your life, still leading you to despair, still leading you to all sorts of acts that hurt you or degrade you or degrade other people, that there is hope available to you this morning in Jesus and there's not a kind of person he turns away. Anyone who comes to him, he receives and he will never cast you out. So please don't leave this morning without repenting and turning to him and trusting him. His heart is bigger than anyone's heart you've ever met and he wants to welcome you to come to him. Let's pray there.